Can I ask how many of you are, out of curiosity, how many of you were raised in a home that if the church doors were open, you were supposed to be there? If that was you growing up, raise your hand. Okay. A minority of us. Um, you know, uh, the last couple years of my dad's life, we had church services Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, youth on Sunday afternoon, and Sunday night service. We had eight services a week. Now, I lived under extreme mercy in my home. I say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, because I only had to attend, I was typically required to attend Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday night, and the three Sundays. So I kind of got out of, now sometimes I got out of Sunday night. So I, I, I probably had six of the eight that I was required to be at. Um, but I got to tell you, it's not something I regret. It is not something I regret. I chafed under it a little bit back then, but I look back on it and realize what my parents were teaching me and the value of what I was being taught. You know, uh, sometimes I think to myself that um, Sunday to Sunday is just too long. It's just too long. We, we are not starving for too much fellowship in our culture today. And this thing called social media is deceiving people into thinking they're having fellowship when they're not. So I wanna urge you to consider the importance and the power of fellowship together. I know that you can experience God's presence by yourself, but Jesus gave us a special promise when he said, where two or three of you gather together in my name, there I will be in your midst. It's vital for us to understand that there is a, that there is a sense of God's presence, an experience of God's presence that only comes to us when we gather together. I know that doesn't necessarily mean church services. It can mean just inviting another Christian family over to your home. We encourage that as well. But I really believe that, that, that what we do on Wednesday nights is, well, I don't believe. I know that we're trying to make it something vital for us. We're trying to make it something that is really uplifting and something that's really strengthening. That's part of the discipleship of, of our children and our adults. And so Wednesday nights, we're going, to have, uh, we're going to have our children's program restarting in a different format on, um, on February 24th. Again, I'll give more details going forward. Our youth will be meeting uh, as well, and we'll have an adult, um, an adult Bible study and prayer time as well. So I encourage you to, uh, uh, with a month's notice, to, to purpose in your heart that you're going to make that part of your, your weekly routine. I know it's effort. I know it's energy, I know it's all of that, okay? Um, but I think you'll find that, that there's, a, there's a reward that comes from that kind of investment and in, in that, that we can invite God to meet with us and, uh, and to speak with us during those times. So I uh, encourage you just to keep that before you. It's, um, it's I believe, uh, something that we should be excited about and something that we should really be looking forward to. Uh, last, I said that was the last one, but I should mention this. We, we do have a men's breakfast that's coming up on, uh, on February 6th. It's our next uh, opportunity for fellowship together, men. Uh, there's a couple's coffee that's being planned. There's a bunch of stuff in here that you need to take a look at. So please make sure 
that you um, that you grab a bulletin, and uh, and I'll make sure I make more of an announcement about the couples coffee next week and some of the other announcements. But please get a bulletin. Make sure you keep up to date on what's going on. All right. All right. Let's let's turn our attention to scripture this morning. Sometimes I feel like um, announcements are an intrusion upon the flow, but sometimes they're necessary. Um, we sang this morning about God's faithfulness, but it was really about uh, something just a little bit different. Before I get to it, let me give you a quick review on where we've been. Over the first three weeks of, of this year, we have focused our attention on the subject of the kingdom of God. That's where we have had our attention focused. It's on the kingdom. How do we understand the kingdom? So let me just do a, a, a really fast review of where we've been. From Luke chapter 17, the first week, from Luke 17, verses 20 through 21, we looked at these truths, that the kingdom is present wherever we are. My brothers and sisters, you are kingdom carriers. The kingdom of God is on your block because you are on your block. You take the kingdom there or you don't take the kingdom. Well, you do take the kingdom there, but some of us keep it to ourselves. But your neighbors, your neighbors are in the presence of the kingdom because you are a member of the kingdom. The only way they'll know about it, however, is if you share it with them. Right? You are the carrier of the kingdom with you wherever you go. Secondly, the fact that the kingdom is within us, that is, it rules inside of us, the kingdom is within us. Your, your heart is, is, a, uh, is a geography. It's an empire. And God rules it. The problem is there are little areas of rebellion, little pockets of rebellion that most of us have in certain, certain parts of our, <clears throat> of our hearts that the king is still dealing with. But it's a kingdom. It's a kingdom. And it's ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all in the process of learning what it is to allow his rule to dominate us. I'm losing my voice. Hopefully it comes back as we go. Or we'll go home early. Um, the third thing we saw is that kingdoms have rulers and borders and laws and enemies. And we focused on each one of those and talked about them a little bit. Um, and this morning I want to share... One other thing that kingdoms have, there are probably a number of other things that kingdoms have, but this morning we're going to look at one other thing that kingdoms have. They have rulers, they have borders, they have laws, and they have enemies. Uh, two weeks ago then, um, or week, be yeah, week before last, from Matthew 12, <clears throat> verses 22 through 29, we considered... The fact that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. We talked about what it means for a kingdom to be divided against itself. Um, I never cease to be amazed sometimes at the, timely, how many, the timeliness of, of, of God's word, the, the currency of it, that it, it speaks to us where we are today. We are, um, in many respects, a nation that's divided we talked about what it is for a kingdom to be divided against itself. We talked about not only can a nation or a kingdom not be divided against itself, but a city cannot be divided against itself and stand. A family 
can't be divided against itself and stand. And a church cannot be divided against itself and stand. Throughout the New Testament, the call that is issued repeatedly to congregations is a call to unity. It's a call to be of one mind, to be of one spirit, to be of one accord. And we see a special sense, especially in the book of Acts, of the way the Holy Spirit is free to operate in a place when people gather together in one accord. This, this um, I don't mean to be crass, but this issue of unity seems to be the fertilizer that allows growth to take place. I think that's a vital understanding to have. There are ways that your children need to grow into maturity that they will be hindered from if mom and dad are at war with each other. If your family's at war, there are aspects of growth that will not happen, that need to happen and should happen. When churches are divided against themselves, there is kingdom work and growth that should be happening that will not be happening. And there's a limitation on the power of the Holy Spirit that can be present. It's vital that we understand the importance of togetherness, the importance of unity, of oneness of spirit. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Last week, from John um, 18, verses 33 through 38, we saw that Jesus' kingdom, first of all, exists on... How does this happen? I am telling you, if I go back there, the word plane is going to be in there. I, I don't know what happened. The kingdom exists on a different plane. It exists on a different plane. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a kingdom of this world's geography. It exists in a spiritual sphere. It exists on a different plane. Secondly, it operates in a different way. It operates on a different... It's got different rules. It's got different rules. It's got different, different ways that it functions. We have to learn the ways of the kingdom. We are, we are too easily swallowed up by the ways of the world. And please hear this. And... And, and I'm not even just talking just about things that are sinful. I'm talking about the fact that sometimes we don't know how much of our spirits are governed by our culture rather than by the kingdom of God. Sometimes I, I thought to myself as I evaluated things looking back, sometimes my family taught me how to be a better Italian than it did be a, be a better Christian. I mean, there's certain ways you're supposed to talk. You know what I mean. Right? And we learn certain ways of behavior, certain patterns of behavior that become natural to us. It was drummed into me that we eat at Pat's, we don't eat at Geno's. That's the way it is. Right? That's being a good Italian spewler. But it's not necessarily being a good Christian. And sometimes we're better Americans than we are Christians. And sometimes we confuse the two. Sometimes we confuse the two. God help us. God help us to understand that the kingdom of God operates in a different way. It's got different priorities. Different methods. And then we looked at the fact that the kingdom of God is both separate from and interactive with this world. It is separate from, it makes us a people apart from. 
but it never makes us a people in isolation from. We were not called to run to the hills. We were called to engage in our world. We were called to live in the midst of it. We don't get the privilege of being taken out of it yet. We have to be in it. At the same time, we're not of it. This is the, the, the very brief, short outline of where we've been and looking at the kingdom together. I want to start this morning, after that introduction, with a series of questions. I want to ask you a series of questions. Here they are. I'd like you to answer this one out loud. The next two, I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud. Next two are private, okay? How would you describe the times we're living in? Volatile. Chaotic. Chaotic. Divided. Divided. Filled with deceit. Filled with deceit. Anybody got anything good to say? Predictable. <laughs> What's that? Predictable. Pre predictable? Okay. We'd have to, we'd have to think about that one for a while. What else? Sharpening. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of opportunity. The, uh, the Chinese, and some of you have heard me say this before, but the, the, the ancient Chinese had a curse. When they got mad at someone, they would curse someone by saying, may you live in interesting times. Get it? <laughs> May you live in interesting times. Is interesting a way to describe the times we're living in? It is interesting, isn't it? It's an interesting day. We live in interesting... Yeah, lots of fearfulness. A lot of fearfulness. All right, let me ask you the second question. How would you describe the condition of your family right now? If you're being honest. What's the condition of your family? All right, the first question is, what's the time? What's the, what are the conditions of the times we live in? How about the conditions of your home? What's the condition of your family? Just take a second. Maybe when you go home today, one thing you could, you could do would be to say to your husband or wife, what did you think of the condition of our family right now? And see if the husband and wife have the same impression of the condition of the family. You might, find, you might find something interesting in the discussion there. How would you describe where you're at in your inner life? How are things inside of you? Is it well with your soul? Is there peace? Is there joy? Is there anxiety? Is there fear? Is there bitterness? Is there forgiveness? What's the condition on the inside of you? May God give us the gift of honesty with ourselves. Amen? Not necessarily easy to be honest with ourselves all the time. May God give us the gift of honesty with ourselves. All right. 
Here's why I ask these questions. <clears throat> I want to read our text and then tell you why the songs that we sang this morning were the ones that were selected. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. By the way, what was the first account that's referred to in the book of Acts? What is it? The book of Luke, right? The same guy that wrote Luke wrote, wrote Acts. Okay? So the first account, that is the Gospel of Luke, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these... He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So this is where I want to focus this morning. These two verses are going to be the special focus, and then we're going to close with a little surprise. But the phrase that's there in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or epochs. What is the word that's used in the King James? The times or the seasons? Seasons. The word seasons is the one that's used. All right, so um, what did we sing? Saying God is good all the time. Well, if he's good all the time, it doesn't matter what the season is, does it? Doesn't matter. He's good all the time. If you're walking through the valley, how many of you thank God that for most people, the valley is not all of life? It's a season of life. In fact, usually most people have valleys numerous times of numerous seasons during their lives, right? But it's a season. It's not forever. We sang, great is thy faithfulness. And we took the analogy very literally of, of summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, stars, and their courses above. Why does the hymn writer put that in there? Because he's talking about the fact that in every season of the year, as is the case in every season of life, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. I don't think there's many people whose favorite season is winter, but there are some. If you're one of those, raise your hand. See, there's only a few of you. How many of you have a great preference for either spring or summertime? Raise your hand high. See there? Right? But listen, every season of life has its upsides and its downsides. And God is faithful in every single one of them. We sang, we sang, He's always been faithful to me. I can't remember a trial or a pain. That's a season. It's a time, right? Can't remember any time that he wasn't faithful to me in that. We're saying, I will be still and know that you are God. When the, when the uh, oceans rise and the thunders roar, that's pretty intense, isn't it? It's a season. 
It's a season. And God is faithful in every season of life. Every epoch of life or every time of life. It's interesting that when we look at this passage, one of the things that we discover about seasons is that they are marks of the kingdom. They are part of what it is to be in the kingdom of God. We're going to focus on the times and the seasons of the kingdom here. Let me real quickly uh, run through some of the background. I wish... I wish that there was an entire book of the the Bible devoted to this verse right here. What we're told is that after his resurrection, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And that during that 40-day period, he was speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. How many of you feel a little bit ripped off? For 40 days, he taught his disciples, and we don't have a record of it. There are very, very small accounts of anything that Jesus did after his resurrection. But this tells us that for 40 days, during his resurrection, he was appearing to them, and he was teaching them about the kingdom. Now I'm going to give you the other side. I don't think we actually need to feel ripped off. Because if they had recorded what Jesus had taught them about the kingdom, I think it would have sounded a lot like the rest of the New Testament. I think, here's, I can't prove this, but I think this is right. I think that the way they knew that the writings of a man like Paul should be included in the canon of Scripture is because they were able to say, man, this guy knows by revelation what Jesus taught us during the 40 days. Everything he writes agrees with that. I think they, I think they had a way of testing, a way of knowing that a man was speaking by the Spirit of God. They had had three years with Jesus, and then after his death and his resurrection, when finally everything made a little bit more sense, he then teaches them about the kingdom. What's it like to be citizens of the kingdom? It's all the things that Paul would come along and teach, or the other New Testament writers would come along and teach about what it means to get along in the kingdom of God, what it means for us to be believers, how we are to live righteously in the kingdom of God. All the things that were taught us in the New Testament, I think, are, are representative of what Jesus told them for 40 days. I think that's probable. I can't prove it, but that's my opinion. I'm sticking to it for now. He was teaching them about the kingdom. Now notice this, because I think it's fascinating, that when he's teaching them about the kingdom, and they come to him and they say, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? We've talked about this a couple of times now. But remember, they were looking for an earthly kingdom in which Roman rule would be overthrown and Israel would be once again the head of the nations. They were looking for a very physical earthly kingdom. And they ask him the question, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? Notice Jesus does not say to them, as he said to them at times during his earthly minute, does not say to them something like, how long have I been with you and you still don't get it? He didn't say that. He didn't correct them. He didn't tell them, don't you understand that's not going to happen? What he said is it's not for you to know the time. I think it is going to happen. I think this, this answer provides us with a hint that there is indeed a millennial kingdom coming in which there will be an earthly kingdom and Israel will have a place in that kingdom. 
But Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. That's none of your business. Not for you to know. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't tell them that their expectation is wrong. In fact, evidently, they thought it was appropriate to ask the question because nothing Jesus had taught them about the kingdom had led them to the conclusion that this would never happen. I think it's appropriate for us to understand that there is an earthly kingdom coming, a time when there will be an earthly kingdom that will exist before heaven. That being said, I really want to focus on what Jesus answered them in verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or epochs, the times or, or seasons, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. It's interesting, you know, in, uh, in, in Mark 13, verse 32, Jesus made a, a rather remarkable statement. He was talking about the things that were going to happen in the future, and He said to His disciples, No man, not, no man, no angel, not even I, Know the things that the Father has in His own power. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Now here's, here's what I don't know. I don't know if Jesus in all of time past, when He was in His pre-incarnate state, I don't even know how to describe the mystery of the Trinity. Whatever the, the being of God is like in eternity past, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, I don't know if, if Jesus was, was not included in the knowledge of the future, or maybe if he just gave up that knowledge when he became a man, when he set it aside, if he set it aside. I don't know. But what he says during his earthly ministry is, no one knows, not even I know, the time when this end is going to come, when the end of all things is going to come. Now listen to this. If Jesus acknowledges that in his earthly state there were limitations to what he knew or could know, you and I had better get used to the idea that there are going to be limitations to what we can do and to what we can know. My brothers and sisters, Jesus' answer reminds us that we have limitations. It is not for you to know. Now listen, let's just pause here for a second. How many of you, how many of you don't like the idea of not being able to know? How many of you feel com more comfortable knowing than not knowing? Right? So let me, I'll, I'll tell you a little secret about myself. It's one of those embarrassing facts, but it kind of is what it is. When I was a, a very small child, and I would be laying in bed and have some time of fear, I always laid in the same position. I would always turn in my bed to the same position when I was afraid. I always turned on my back. You know why? Because if something was going to jump on me, I wanted to see it coming. I didn't want to be surprised by it. Because I like to know. So I'd lay in bed, because that way, on my back, 
How many painting jumps? I'll see it coming. And at least I'll be prepared for it. That's kind of us as humans, isn't it? We like to know. I like to know. I like to be able to be. It gives us a kind of feeling of control, doesn't it? It gives us a sense of I can do something about it. I can prepare for it or I can ward it off or I can, right? There's a certain sense in which we feel a little bit more powerless when we don't know. Well, we have to get used to the idea. We have limitations. Jesus said, it's not for you to know. I can only imagine how deflating that was in the moment. They're asking a question because they want an answer. And the answer they get is, sorry, I'm not going to tell you. In fact, the more extended answer was, I don't even know what to tell you. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. Those events in the future are in His power. They're in His authority, the Father's power and authority. That's none of our business. It's a remarkable statement. You and I learn from this that we have limitations to what we can do and to what we can know. All right, let's do this. How many of you have ever tried to change somebody else? Raise your hand high if you're honest with yourself and you know you've tried to change someone else. How many of you have come to discover you can't do that? Amen? Just give it up. It's hopeless. You can give counsel. You can give advice. You can share your idea, but you can't change them. You cannot change them. You might have some suggestions, but if they're going to change, it's up to them. There are limitations to what you can know and to what you can do. You can't change somebody else. How many of you find that one of the biggest difficulties you have in making a decision is that, in essence, what you're trying to do is predict the future? You're trying to figure it out so clearly that you know that you can say that, well, I know what's, what's going to be best. But the problem is what's best is something that still is ahead of you. Right? Some of us find ourselves getting paralyzed in our ability to make decisions because what we're really trying to do is divine the future. We're trying to predict the future. And you can't know that. You can't know that. I think most of us come face to face to the, with the fact that we don't really like our limitations. We're not comfortable with them. We're not thrilled about them. There are some things, however, that belong only to God. Listen to this. And he's not sharing them with me. He's not going to do it. They belong to him. <clears throat> some of us actually try to live as if we were omnipotent. We never have a weakness. We never have a struggle. We never have a need. We would never tell anybody if we did. It'd be too embarrassing. We act as if we've got it. I got this. No, you don't. No, I don't. Really don't. We don't like our limitations. Most of us aren't comfortable expressing them. We don't like to acknowledge how common our weaknesses are. 
how common our sins are, how common our temptations are. We don't like it. There's a certain frailty that goes along with being human. There's a certain built-in limitation that goes into being human. Thank God by the power of his spirit, he can help us overcome some of those things. But, but we need to acknowledge that they're there, that they're there, that we have these limitations. In many of the Psalms, I think one of the reasons why the Psalms are so appealing to most Christians is because they're so real. Because the psalmists are so often being honest about the fact that they're wrestling with what they don't know and what they can't do. Psalmists are like, God, you got to do something about my enemies because they're too strong for me. Or I think of the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73. You know this whole thing, God, about the reason why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? I'm kind of fed up with that. In fact... I'm not so sure that my faith is worth it. I mean, he goes to extremes. My steps had well nigh slipped. I had fallen. I said to myself, my righteousness is useless. What's the point of being righteous when the righteous suffer for it? What's the point, God? Why bother? That's honest. But you know what? We, we have this fear that if we said it out loud, someone would think us so unspiritual. But we all think it sometimes. If not, something like it. Right? So hey, jump in. We have limitations. All of us do. All of us do. The real question is, can we trust God with our limitations? That's the real question. Okay, God, when I'm powerless, do I trust that you have this? Because I don't. <laughs> Can I try? It's, really a, it's really a matter of trust. It's a question of trust. Can I, with all my limitations, trust that there's a God who can handle it? Can I trust that? All right. Because the fact of the matter is, while I don't know the future, God does have it in his power. He's got it. He's got this. The second thing we see, we may not uh, like, know, uh, we may know, uh, brother, we may not like our limitations, we may not like our lack of control, but we have to trust God with these limitations. So the second thing to look at is this phrase that Jesus uses, our times and our seasons, our times and our epochs. Times. The word times is the word chronos in in uh, New Testament Greek, it's the word chronos. It refers to a space of time of unspecified duration. It's really just the ticking of the clock, okay? It's, the, it's literally a measurement of time, however long something lasts, the duration of time. It's, it's that passing of time in part that makes the psalmist cry out, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to last? How long does it have to be this way? God, this feels like it's taking too long. The apostles, for example, could never have possibly imagined on that day, picture it, 
on that day they're talking to Jesus right before he goes up and they say to him, is it at this time that you'll establish the kingdom, reestablish, restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time. There's no way they could have imagined that 2,000, 2,000 years later, it still wouldn't have happened. 2,000 years. Like during Jesus' ministry, they were expecting it then. And here we are 2,000 years later, and an earthly kingdom has not been set up yet. There's no way they could possibly have imagined how long it would be. And that's, that's kind of the way it is in life. How many of you just relish your next opportunity to wait a little bit longer? You can't wait for it. You know, I just, I just love to wait. Isn't it good to wait? Don't you just love waiting? You know, what I really wish is the next time I run through a fast food place, they'd make me wait a little bit longer. I just love to wait. Isn't it great to wait? We don't like it very much, do we? But the fact of the matter is, you and I have no control over the passing of time. We have no control over how long some things will last. They are the times and the seasons which the Father has in His power. The word seasons or epochs is in Greek the word kairos. It's an occasion, a set or proper time, an opportunity. I think Chris Patterson used the word opportunity for the day in which we live. Every epoch, every season has an opportunity with it. They have their challenges, but they have their opportunities. Right? However, it's a word that also implies that there is a certain quality or characteristic of a time. That's why I asked you to describe the times in which we're living. And you said things like fearful and, and predictable. <laughs> I'm still confused. Um, and what were some of the other words that were used? I am going to get an explanation. Um, what were some of the other words that were used? Volatile, chaotic, right? These are the times. These are kind of the, the, this is kind of the atmosphere, the environment in which we live. It's the kairos in which we live. It's the power of Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, right? To everything there is a season. It's fascinating. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to cry. There are appropriate times to cry. You know, one of, the, one of the challenges we have is that too often we find ourselves fighting our seasons, don't we? It's time to cry, but we don't cry. There's a time for peace and there's a time for war. Oh, there is a time for war. And then there's a time to make peace. And you go through the whole list there in Ecclesiastes, and there's a time for everything. There's a time for everything. That is, there's an appropriate season for everything. Some seasons we like more than others. So, 
Nations have seasons. We described where our nation is at. Churches have seasons. Families have seasons. You stand around a graveside and you realize our family is going through a season of mourning right now. Um, I, don't, I don't mean anything by this. I, I hope she will forgive me for this. Sister Thelma had a brother who passed away a couple weeks ago. And when she told me that, I, I have actually had that come back to me repeatedly. Prayed for you, by the way, Sister Thelma. And, and, and the, the, reason I, the reason why I was motivated to pray even maybe more than I would ordinarily have been was because for some reason in that moment, it just struck me that there comes a time in life when you get to a certain age where you end up being one of the last ones standing. That's not easy. When you see everyone that was your peer passing from the scene and you end up having to think to yourself, who's going to be the last among us? It's getting thin. That's not an easy season to deal with. That's hard. It's hard. There are these seasons that life asks us to go through. For whatever reason, I just found this interesting as a way to illustrate this idea. They have up there a product life cycle, but it's true also of organizations. There's a life cycle that everything goes through. It has, a, it has an introduction that is a birth. It has a time of growth. It reaches a time of maturity, and then it goes into a state of decline. One of the fascinating things you can study is how this works in, in denominations that are birthed in a move of God's Holy Spirit, a revival, typically, and then they go through a time of incredible growth, and then they reach a time of maturity, and then they start to decline. It's fascinating how that happens. It's become a pretty well-known, well-studied phenomenon in the business world. This is a very simple chart. There are much more detailed ones out there if you want to look them up, but I just figured I'd throw out an easy one. Then there's this one, and this is a very interesting development. This is a very interesting thing that business has looked at especially, and I think that we can learn a lot from it spiritually. It's an organizational life cycle. Can I ask, has anyone here ever heard of the sigmoid curve? A, few, a couple of you have said yes? Good. Here's the sigmoid curve, a version of it anyways. That in that curve, you notice the curve of, of life cycles from birth to then decline, that somewhere close to the peak, somewhere close to the peak, when you're, when you're reaching maturity, there's a, a brief time span of opportunity. Before, the, before you reach the crest of the curve, when you're at your peak, when everything seems to be going its very best, that's when you have to start asking yourself, what's the next thing? Because once you step into decline, decline is very hard to stop. 
that typically the best time to make a change is when you're thinking we've arrived. And that's when you have to be willing to start something that's going to that's gonna take you back through that little slow dip again. Say, hey, we're going to pay the price, but we're going to be rebirthed. We're going re to be rebirthed here. And, and you start, and in the in-between phase, there's this time of intense doubt and uncertainty. Are the changes we're making the right changes? Are we headed the right direction? What's this going to look like? But you can find out that it can produce another wave of growth that takes you to another plane that you never thought was achievable. You know, God never intended for his people to get stuck in one place. Every once in a while, we need something that shakes us out of where we're at, that gets us, the old hymn that expressed it was, um, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day. Though some may dwell where sin abounds, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, set my feet on higher ground. It's that, that sense of spiritual ambition that if I'm not moving upward, there's a problem. The problem with moving upward means it always means changing from where I am today. And that's not easy to do. Growing beyond where I am today. The choice is being willing to enter into a time of uncertainty that leads to a resurgence or avoiding it and leading to a place of stagnation that's, that takes me, takes me down. You know, every season of life, as Chris mentioned, becomes an opportunity, no matter how down the season is, for me to say, Lord, what are you teaching me that's going to take me to the next plateau when I get through this? It all becomes a question of how we respond to the seasons of life. Here's the last thing, Jesus' answer. And this is where I said there was a little surprise. Because having focused on verse 7, I want to close with verse 8. I, however many times I've looked at the passage, I saw it in a new light today or this week. It's fascinating to me that after saying, after Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has in his own power, he then told, that was the negative, that's not for you to know, but here's what is for you to know. Here's the positive side. The positive side is this, however long it's going to be before the kingdom comes, However long it is before Israel is restored and the millennial kingdom comes, however long that is, here's what you do need to know. You don't need to know how long. But that's what we want to know, God. No, you don't get to know that. Here's what you should know. What we should know, Jesus' real answer is in verse 8. It's, it's two things. He says in essence, to his disciples. Nope, you don't get to know that. There's going to be a long time, a long season of unspecified length, duration, and it's going to have a variety of conditions. And during those times and conditions, 
Here's what I have to offer you. I'm not going to answer the question you want to know. But here's what I do have for you. What I do have for you is a mission. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. I'm not sure I know how to describe this properly because I'm not, I'm not at all suggesting that there's a right way to do this. But you know, if, if we could take a step back sometimes and realize that every season of life is an opportunity for there to be a certain witness, that, that um, you're a believer and you don't want to be in the hospital, but you're in the hospital. So the question becomes, what is my witness during this time? The way I handle this, if I'm a crotchety grump to all these nurses, what kind of witness am I being? They might see me in pain. That's okay, it's not a bad witness. They might see me cry. It's okay, it's not a bad witness. But they might also see my kindness They might also hear my prayers. They may also hear my worship. And all of a sudden I realize that my season is an opportunity to be a witness. Every funeral is an opportunity for a witness. Every wedding is an opportunity for a witness. Every season of life is an opportunity for... When that person cuts you off, you have a season to be a witness. Right? Something that says I'm either going to portray God well or I'm going to portray Him very poorly in this moment. What Jesus gave us was this. You're not going to know how long it's going to last. <clears throat> and you don't know what the, what the conditions are going to be like. But i got a job for you in it. What I want you to focus on is that I've called you to be my witness. Called you to be my witness. That's what you're here for, however long this lasts. I think of the people that he was talking to. I think of the stories. How many of you have ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? You ever read it? I've never read it all the way through. I haven't had the stomach for it. I read parts of it, and then I stop. Peter supposedly was hung on a cross upside down. John, we believe, was dipped in boiling oil and came out alive and lived. My brothers and sisters, how you talk to the people after that becomes your witness. You know, I said it in the context of Sister Thelma. That was John. John was the last of the apostles. And I think about what it must have been like to be on the island of Patmos all by himself. You're the last man standing. You've been dipped in oil. You've gone through it all. You're thinking to yourself, here I am, an old man. What's my witness? What's left? God still has you here. Be a witness. Be a witness. You don't get to choose your seasons. You don't get to choose how long they last. You've been given a mission. 
And the last thing is, you've been given a promise of a resource. He said, I will give you my Holy Spirit. When my Holy Spirit has come upon you, he, you will be my witnesses. That's what you will be. Please hear this. Whatever season God asks you to go through, He is going to provide for you a grace for it. He is going to give you a presence of His Spirit to go through. I'm not saying you will feel that always. But I'm telling you that there is a promised grace for that moment that if you will cry out to God, listen to this, and turn your face toward the wind instead of turning away from it the way we have a desire to, if you will turn toward it and say, Dear God in heaven, how do you want me to face this? There is a promise that God has staked his reputation on that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will give you his Holy Spirit that will sustain you through that season. And as a result, you will be his witness. You will be his witness. That's what you do get. You don't get to know. You do get a mission, and you do get the promise of help. You do get the promise of the Holy Spirit who will help you, who will sustain you through it. You do get that, a resource. We need to close, so I'm going to ask you to close with me in prayer. We're not going to sing this morning. We're just going to close in four or five minutes of prayer. I'm going to ask our musicians to come back, and I'm going to ask them to play that song still, just very quietly in the background. And if, if you would, I'd like you to, uh, just as you bow, Take a minute and identify a season that could potentially be a little bit of trouble for you. You know, I've talked to plenty of Christians that are pretty riled up over our elections and all of that. I just ask you to, to just say, dear God, what's the right way to respond as a Christian to this season that we're in? What would you have me do as a believer? Or maybe you really need to ask yourself, what does it mean for what my family's going through right now? Lord, what, what kind of grace do I need for this right now? Because God, my witness is at stake. My witness is at stake. What season is your marriage in? What season is your, is your family in? Maybe I could ask you to be real honest. What season are you in on the inside? I really want to be quiet, I want to close, but I want to, I, I want to impress upon you the importance of honesty. Did you know that ancient Christians had a term, they had a, a name for the condition a believer got in when they were just cold toward God? They called it acedia. It means you're becalmed, you're in the doldrums spiritually. There was an entire, an entire concept of just being honest. Right now, spiritually, I'm stuck, I'm dead, I'm becalmed, I'm in the doldrums, I'm just shut off. And somehow I gotta get alive again. But that's people that were honest about where they were at. Until we're honest with God about our seasons, we can't do a whole lot of asking Him for His Holy Spirit to help us with them. So just take a minute to bow. 
and to say, Lord, help me to be honest with whatever season I'm in right now. And God, what would you have me to do with this season? Okay, would you just bow and take some time to reflect and to pray?